What's the hardest thing that you've ever done? Is there something that you've done in the past that just required everything that you had and you didn't think you'd be able to possibly keep going? If you don't know, what's the hardest thing that you can imagine doing? Let me know in the comments below. In just a moment, we're gonna be diving into a thought experiment about the most extreme endurance activity we can possibly imagine for as long as possible. And this is gonna set the stage and lay the groundwork for talking about fat metabolism in different energy systems as we take them to their limits. Whatever that activity is, we know that in order to be able to keep doing it once we start, we somehow have to be able to get or find or mobilize and then use energy. That's why one of the best things we've got going for us as humans is our ability to store fat and then use that in a later time as energy. But not all fat is the same, and not everyone has the same ability to use fat for fuel. If exercise is not a significant part of our lives, then our ability to use fat for fuel is gonna be impaired. The same can be said if we're carrying significantly more fat mass than we need to be. Although there is some nuance to this, and we're gonna be illustrating some of these concepts by talking about what happens in our bodies when we push our energy systems to their limits please be sure to hit the subscribe button. We're gonna jump right into this episode on metabolic health in the setting of fat storage and metabolism. What if we wanted to undertake the most extreme energy intensive activity that we could possibly imagine for as long as possible, let's say six months. Every day we get out of bed doing this insane activity and we ask ourselves, where are we gonna get the energy to keep going? The activity can be whatever you want. In this example, we're gonna say that we're gonna be biking and we're gonna go about 18,000 miles over six months. That's about 100 miles a day. We should be biking just about all day. That's going to get us from New York to California about three times and back. Of course, this is for illustrative purposes only. Exercising or exerting yourself for this long is not good for you. So please don't try this. Please don't try anything like it. In addition, none of the following is medical advice. If you're thinking about making any changes to your health or health decisions, you should always consult with your doctor and attain his or her approval. I wanna emphasize that your health is exclusively your responsibility. So as we start out, our exact fuel source depends upon how hard we're exerting ourselves. If we're taking it extremely easy, then almost all of our calories are gonna be coming from fat. But we don't want to do that because then we won't get anywhere. We want to go at maybe a moderate pace. So the first stores of fuel to be tapped are the carbohydrate stores in the liver and the skeletal muscle called glycogen. You can think of glycogen as being like the animal version of starch. It's a long carbohydrate chain that branches out and it's made up of a whole bunch of smaller sugars called glucose that are all joined together by chemical bonds. The whole point of glycogen is that when we start exercising, we're gonna be tapping into our blood glucose. If we don't replenish that blood glucose, it's gonna drop. So when we need to raise our blood glucose or when we need to replenish it, the molecules of glucose stored within glycogen are then trimmed off in a process called glycogenolysis. And then these travel to cells that need it for energy, like contracting skeletal muscle. 
So generally on a day-to-day -day basis, we're pretty good at restoring our levels of glycogen in the liver and the skeletal muscle. But how does glycogen get there in the first place? So the short answer is when you ingest carbohydrates, they get absorbed into your gut and then they travel through the portal vein to your liver, usually in the form of glucose and fructose, which then can get converted as well. And these glucose molecules will get stored and packed away as glycogen for when, they, when we need them at a later time. We can also make glucose from other molecules if it's necessary, and we can get into that in a later episode. So glycogen is a great starting fuel on a day-to-day -day basis as we start out on our trip. But it won't get us that far, only about an hour or two. So once we've exhausted all the different ways that we can replenish glucose into our blood, like glycogen, we have to start turning towards other fuels. Well, the last thing that we want to do is to break down our skeletal muscle and our lean organs. Protein and lean tissue are extremely valuable in nature. Well, that is where fat comes in. We can try to prolong our reserves of glycogen just a bit longer if we go slower, but eventually we will have to start metabolizing fat. The highest amount of our energy can come from metabolized fat when we go at a pace that's not quite all out. More specifically, we burn the highest amount of our calories, calories as fat when we go at an oxygen consumption level that's generally somewhere between 45 and 65% of our maximal oxygen consumption. That's also called VO2 max. Well, how are we going to know what our maximal oxygen consumption or our oxygen consumption is in real time without any lab equipment? Conveniently, it turns out that 45 to 60% of our oxygen consumption max is roughly about 60 to 75% of our maximal heart rate, depending upon a number of factors, age, gender, genetics, and training. One of the most important aspects of training for athletes that compete in these long races that require sustained endurance is they spend a huge amount of time training in what's called zone two, which is this kind of low heart rate zone. It keeps their heart rates low, enables their cells to adapt to burn huge amounts of fat. What they're trying to accomplish in spending so much time in that zone two area for heart rate is they're trying to make biological adaptations that allow them to burn more fat for fuel or raise what's called their maximal fat oxidation or MFO. We'll talk about this a bit later. Now we can draw on at least two forms of stored fat to keep us going. The first is intramuscular fat and the second is our fat contained within adipose tissue. So the fat that we have stored in our muscles or intramuscular is convenient to use because it's located right next to the power generators of our cells called mitochondria. And these are the main part of our cells that are able to convert fatty acids into energy through a process called beta oxidation. To use the stores of our fat that are located in our adipose tissue or our subcutaneous fat or visceral fat, Fatty acids first have to be liberated from those tissues in their storage forms and then transported in the blood by a large protein called albumin to then reach their target tissues like contracting skeletal muscle. We do get an adrenaline boost from exercising, kicking in maybe about 15 minutes to a half an hour after we start, and that helps with some of this liberation of fat from our fat tissue. Well, remember, we're still pedaling in. By now, we're really in the thick of it. We have been depleting our glycogen every day, and we've started to burn most of our energy as fat. 
We've been doing this process day after day, and our bodies have made adaptations like increasing the number of mitochondria, increasing their efficiency at fat metabolism, and now we've also made adaptations to be able to help us to get fatty acids better into our skeletal muscle by expressing a protein called CD36 that goes to the surface of the skeletal muscle cell about 15 minutes to a half an hour after exercising. One of the awesome things about fat is that it's so energy dense that the supply can seem nearly unlimited for reasonable activities. A relatively lean person can have tens of thousands of calories stored as adipose tissue. And that's actually part of the reason why it's so difficult to lose weight. But this activity is not a reasonable activity. We are starting to reach some of the known limits of human endurance, and we've just been riding our bikes for an insanely long time. We're getting really hungry every day. We just can't seem to hold on to our weight. We're burning a ton of calories each day, and we just can't seem to ingest or absorb enough food to stay energy neutral. We're starting to lose some weight. The body doesn't want to digest itself, and so our bodies do what they do when they enter a starvation state, and that is that our metabolic rates, or the calories burned per day, start to drop. That happens even though we are going about the same distance each day. This phenomenon was recently shown to occur in the race across the USA, where athletes ran about a marathon a day for six days per week for 140 days. And what the researchers observed is that the athlete's total energy expenditure dropped by about 596 calories, more than they expected per day as they ran across the country. So our bodies have made all the adaptations that they can, and whether we finish this activity really depends upon whether we can avoid being seriously injured or getting seriously ill, and also whether we can avoid wasting away and eating into our lean mass to a point where we can't go anymore. So this causes us to re-examine our question. Is there any upper limit for how long we could sustain this kind of extreme energy expenditure? There might be. As we look across extreme endurance events that get longer and longer in duration, an athlete's total energy expenditure plateaus at about 2.5 times his or her basal metabolic rate. So basal metabolic rate refers to the energy that you or I would expend per day while laying on a couch. So it doesn't include things like moving around, walking around, running. It's just our basal level for basic body functions. Well, at the very end of this curve across longer and longer endurance events, even beyond a several thousand mile bike ride, at the very end, we find pregnancy. The energy demands of carrying a developing human through pregnancy are huge. And part of the reason why we're born so immature as humans is that it's actually dangerous for the mother and the infant to have a combined energy demand that exceeds the mother's maximal sustainable metabolic rate. And so when the mother approaches that level, tending to be about 2.1 times basal metabolic rate, this necessitates the birth process. And that's led some people to speculate that there is, in fact, an upper limit on sustained energy expenditure over time in humans. Now, I should say that the direct evidence for this upper limit on energy expenditure is lacking that would require a clinical trial that would probably never get approved by any reasonable institutional review board. 
But according to the latest research, we really haven't seen human energy expenditures that have exceeded the metabolic scope of these super long events and pregnancy. But as we know, saying that something is impossible in science doesn't have the best track record. So we'll see what the future holds. One of the current theories on the upper limits of sustained energy exertion in humans is that when stored energy is exhausted, the GI system or the gastrointestinal system may in fact be the rate limiting step. In other words, the rate at which we can put out sustained energy depends upon how fast we can absorb calories from our gut. And that's why some people believe that the best athletes have the best GI systems. So now we've talked about not one, but two extreme types of events, extreme endurance and pregnancy. So now imagine undergoing pregnancy, a state that requires this extraordinary energy input to sustain, and then encountering a period of food scarcity, whether it's due to famine or drought or winter. Famine and drought, they might go away in some kind of reasonable time frame, but the duration of winter is fixed. So to carry a child through a winter in which food is scarce, that requires fat. And that's why females tend to need more fat compared to males. And they've also been shown to have a higher ability to oxidize fat or use it for energy. And especially that is the case in younger female athletes. So fat is critically important, not just for females, but also for males too. When fat levels drop too low in either males or females, that can result in impaired reproductive function. I should mention that the same can be said if there are levels of fat that are too high since there are some hormonal signals that are produced by excess adipose tissue that can also impair reproductive function. We can talk about that in a later episode. So we started off this episode by looking at fat through the lens of endurance and survival. We also talked about what happens when we push our different energy systems to their limits. Now let's take a step back and talk about fat and how it functions at a physiological level, and then what can go wrong in the pathophysiology of obesity and metabolic dysfunction. So we mentioned that we have a few different places where we can store fat. The main ones again being adipose tissue and intramuscular. For completeness, we should also mention ectopic fat. Ectopic fat is generally located in organs and places where it really shouldn't be. It can lead to long-term adverse health outcomes. We can find adipose tissue underneath the skin and that's called subcutaneous fat. And then some people conversely tend to store more fat around their organs and that's called visceral fat. And that can be much harder to see and we'll see why that's problematic in a couple minutes. So we know that one of the main functions of fat is to store energy, but where is that energy stored? Well, every fat cell called an adipocyte has at least one fat droplet and that can vary in size and that serves as an energy reserve of fat for that fat cell and for the rest of the body. The fat or the lipid more technically within the droplet is made up of a molecule that's called a triacylglycerol. Some people may have heard this referred to as triglycerides, the same thing. Now triglycerides or triacylglycerols look structurally kind of like the end of a three-pronged dinner fork. If you can imagine those three fatty acids coming off are long molecules that look like the prongs, and then they're connected all together by a glycerol backbone that's kind of like the bridge on that dinner fork. During periods of food abundance or positive energy balance, 
fat is stored particularly in what's called white adipose tissue, and that's stored in the form of triglycerides. Similarly, during times of negative energy balance, like during starvation uh, or during extreme exercise, the adipocytes begin to break down their stored fat from that triglyceride form to the glycerol and fatty acid forms in a process called lipolysis. So the reactions of fat metabolism, and specifically lipolysis, are pretty tightly regulated by some key hormones of the fed and the fasted states. And those key hormones are insulin and catecholamines. So insulin is a hormone that's released from the pancreas after we eat. And it's released in large amounts after we eat carbohydrates and amino acids or proteins specifically. The whole job of insulin is that it signals to the body that it's time to store nutrients like glucose. And in this case, we're talking about fat metabolism. So it generally suppresses the release of fatty acids. Conversely, catecholamines, which are the flight or fight hormones, more commonly known as adrenaline or epinephrine, stimulate enzymes like hormone-sensitive lipase in adipocytes to begin this process of lipolysis. Now, we mentioned before that after fatty acids are broken apart from that glycerol backbone, they have to be exported from the cell to be transported through the circulation to their target tissue. And this occurs typically with a large protein molecule known as albumin. It can also happen in free fatty acid forms where the fatty acids are not carried by anything This can be problematic, actually, and we'll get in in the next episode into some brain changes that happen when we have free fatty acids. Now, there are some other functions of fat, like shock absorption and thermal regulation. A type of fat called brown fat is generally more energetically active, and its whole purpose is to generate heat for the body. The mitochondria within brown fat have some additional purposes that extend beyond the normal energy production for the cell. That is that they have the ability to uncouple their respiration from energy production. They do this through a protein known as uncoupling protein 1, or UCP1. That protein inserts itself into the mitochondrial membrane to create what's effectively a hole-in-a-bucket effect. So imagine we're pumping water into a bucket, and it has a huge hole in it. That's going to take a lot of energy. We're never going to be done, and that's going to allow us to generate heat from that process. Well, some studies have suggested that brown fat activation may be beneficial for regulating glucose levels or for maintaining better glucose homeostasis. And that's actually been shown even with intentional code exposure. And so that means that there's a way to trigger this process that could be of interest. I think those studies are early. This needs to be confirmed with large clinical trials, but certainly something that is interesting to us. And then certainly there's an interest in intentionally activating brown fat for weight loss purposes with pharmaceutical targeting, although this research is pretty new. And as far as I'm aware, there is no drug that does this in a safe manner in humans at the moment. Now, a super important function of fat that is not often talked about is that fat's actually an extremely important endocrine organ that produces hormones, and a lot of them. In fact, the hormonal function of fat is so important in communicating to the brain and the rest of the body that if there is a genetic defect where we lack one of those hormones, that can result in a phenotype where appetite dysregulation is so severe that it results in constant debilitating food intake, extreme hunger, and extreme obesity even early in childhood. 
So the hormonal job of fat is to signal to the rest of the body about overall energy balance. It does that through signaling molecules called adipokines that travel to other cells in the rest of the body. And one of those key hormones is called leptin. That's produced by fat and it travels to a region of the brain called the hypothalamus. And it signals to the hypothalamus information about the current fat storage state of the body. Generally, when a person has higher levels of fat or if they're gaining weight, they're going to be producing more leptin. And that generally will suppress appetite. But in obesity, in many cases, the leptin signaling between fat and the brain is disrupted. And some evidence suggests that this disruption occurs even before the onset of obesity. So we're going to devote an entire episode to talking about the communication of fat in the brain and how this plays into appetite regulation. So now we've gone over why it is that we need fat from an endurance or performance standpoint and why it's critical to our survival. And we know that the most elite endurance athletes have the greatest ability to use fat for fuel. But what if we're not elite athletes? Are there still things that we can do to improve our ability to use fat for fuel? And of course, there are. One of the things that we've learned over the last few years of research is that even individuals who are lesser trained or potentially even untrained or sedentary altogether have a dramatic ability to increase what is called their maximal fat oxidation capacity. One study took about 60 subjects and uh, divided them into four different groups with two of those groups being exposed to a 12-week exercise program. And what they found was that even among these untrained individuals, that through regular exercise, specifically cardiorespiratory exercise, they were able to improve their maximal fat oxidation capacity by anywhere from 50 to 100%. So this is a huge increase in their ability to use fat for fuel. And that's encouraging because it means that even people who are starting from zero can improve so greatly. But this is really just one small part of the picture. We're talking about maximal fat oxidation capacity, and that's important. The bigger picture, though, and we'll get into this a lot more in the next episode, is that exercise capacity itself, or the ability of someone to tolerate exercise, is so critically important in predicting a lower risk of future death that in some studies, it's actually been considered to be as important or potentially even more important than traditional clinical risk factors like smoking or coronary artery disease or diabetes. Now, those results need to be confirmed, but clearly exercise capacity itself is very important in predicting a, a lower risk of future death. Now, it is important to mention that you should always obtain the approval in the supervision of your own doctor before you start any exercise program because not everyone is healthy enough to exercise. So that's very important. So we've gone through a lot of information in this episode. We looked at the role of fat through the lens of endurance and performance and survival. And we talked about some of the adaptations that our bodies make when they're being pushed to better be able to use fat for fuel. We also talked about some of the adaptations that our bodies make during negative energy balance or in attempt to preserve how the body brings down its metabolic rate. We also got a preview of the way that our brains and our fat communicate together to be able to better regulate energy balance in the body. In our next episode, we're going to be using these concepts to illustrate and talk about what differentiates healthy fat from unhealthy fat. 
and more specifically, what happens when fat storage goes wrong, the beginnings of metabolic dysfunction, and how to know whether the fat that we're carrying and our ability to use it are healthy or conversely putting us at risk in the future. Thank you so much for listening. If you want to support us, the very best way to do that is to hit the subscribe button and the like button. It helps us to reach more people. Please also head over to nicksterling.com where you can find the sign up for any announcements that we'll be making. You can also find me on Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, Spotify, and all the major platforms with the ID Sterling MD PhD. Thank you so much again for listening and we'll see you next time. This podcast is for general information purposes only and does not constitute the practice of medicine or any other healthcare professional services. The content of this podcast is not medical advice and should not be interpreted as medical advice. No doctor-patient relationship is formed. You should not attempt to implement any of the topics or concepts discussed on this podcast without the direct approval and supervision of your own physician. This podcast should not take precedence over the information provided to you by your healthcare provider or official public health sources. Listeners should not delay obtaining medical advice for any medical condition they may have. The use or non-use of the information provided in this podcast or any associated or linked materials is exclusively at the user's own risk. Please visit nicksterling.com for relevant disclosures and full terms of use.